Have you ever walked past a dumpster and been like, yo, I wonder what's in that dumpster? I can put on these glasses. Let's start eating that trash. You're listening to the True Crime Dumpster podcast with hosts Amy and and I'm Kevin. And we're coming back at you this week a little later than, I feel like we say that a lot, a little later than we wanted with episode number 71, Kip Kinkle Part 1. And it was kind of a last minute decision to make this a two-parter because there's so much new information that I'm getting from this awesome Huffington Post article and I just couldn't do it justice without really splitting it in two. So that's what we're going to be doing this week. But also the song slash the montage of sound news bites. Clips. Yeah, news clips that you guys heard when you started listening to the episode is actually from one of Kevin's old bands, Engorged. Yeah. <laughs> it's off the album, if you can call it an album, Death Metal Attack 2. I was just reading the comments on YouTube. Uh, people seem to like it. Uh, but yeah, we how, recorded... How long ago was that? Ah, uh, jeez. I think it was 98. So you actually were writing that song when this was like hot in the news. That's why we wrote it. Uh, It was actually, yeah, it just happened. Yeah, it it really did. It was kind of one of the first school shootings. I mean, if you want to get technical, there's a, there, the first, I think the one that's kind of been attributed is like the first mass school shooter is actually Brenda Ann Spencer, the I Hate Mondays shooter. She's kind of seen as like the first quote unquote school shooter. There's always going to be like exceptions to that. Did she dress up like Garfield when she did it? (laughs) No, but she she did it from. Do you know that story? No, really. She like was a super depressed girl. She was like eleven or twelve. She was really young. Damn, that's crazy. And well, she was maybe thirteen or fourteen, but she was really young, and she lived across the street from the school. And her dad and her had a pretty strained relationship. And so, what do you do when you have a strained relationship with a kid? Get him a gun for their birthday or Christmas or whatever it was. And he gave her like a rifle for her birthday or Christmas or something. And she didn't want to go to school that day. So she just shot people through her window and she killed, I think like two or three people. I think it was mostly staff, but yeah. So, I mean, that almost doesn't count as a school shooting. She didn't even leave her room for it really. Her room from her house. Yeah. So she shot from her like bedroom window. Isn't that crazy? She's still alive. She's like a sniper. Kinda, yeah. I mean, I think she was just shooting, and she, and then reportedly people said that when they asked her like, "Why'd you do it?" She was like, "I don't like Mondays or something," and that's why she's known as that. But she's still alive. I heard a story about her recently, probably on like last podcast on the left or something. They were saying that she is considered one of the golden girls in prison. Do you know? Have you heard of those people? They're you mean like old ladies. Yeah, they're like old ladies who have been in prison for more than like X amount of years. I think it's like 30 years or something. That happened in like the I want to say early to mid 70s. 
or maybe even late 70s, but definitely in the 70s. So she's been in prison since then. She's still alive. When you're a golden girl in prison, you get better accommodations because I think it's I think it's either if you get past a certain age or if you've been there for long enough, you get better accommodations. She's never getting out. I mean, she killed like multiple people and yeah. So she's kind of attributed as being kind of the first school shooter, which is interesting because most school shooters are famously not girls and women. Yeah. So I do want to acknowledge that this episode was actually requested by one of my former students, Mason. And I thought I knew this story, but once I started researching it, I there's so much to it. And I think one of the reasons that there's so much to it is that he is heavily heavily studied in psychology classes and he is kind of like the precedent that's set for school shooters so that's i mean because this happened i think about a year or so before columbine so i think columbine was like 99 something like that no this was like 1998 yeah when death metal attack 2 came out so anyways i want to thank mason for requesting this case and yeah we'll get into it oh and also one of the reasons that this episode is coming out late and, you know, we're having to split it up is, A, we, we are new parents. B, we do have a dog who, no matter what, is trying her best to stay alive. We were told, like, two months ago she had, like, a week or, like, a couple days left and Minutes she's still left, alive. Yeah. yeah. So we've been, like, giving her all of our care and attention. And I actually did just have surgery on Wednesday. So there's been a lot going on. You but have a lot of excuses. I do have a lot of excuses. And I do start summer school on Tuesday. But I just want to let people know I, I do love doing the podcast. And for all the, you know, we don't have a ton of listeners. But I do really appreciate the listeners we do have out there. We've been getting a lot more listens on YouTube and comments and stuff. And I just want to thank people for their kind words and their reviews and their ratings. And like I said, you can find us on like any platform and, you know, leave us a comment, even if it's like a question or, you know, but just don't be too brutal. This is a labor of love. We don't ask for anything. We don't even have like an active Patreon yet. But yeah, we just do it because we like to do it, right? Correct. Yeah. Labor of love. And I would like to say one thing else. Jessica, if you're listening to this, I hate you. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, yeah. You were pretty hungover today. I was brutally hungover all day, and it's Jessica's fault. And Shots, 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 shots. You know, (laughs) I... I guess I'm partially to blame, but anytime someone screams out and with enthusiasm, really bad ideas, I'm all in. (laughs) So thank you, Jessica, for that awesome hangover. So yeah, it's a hangover that lasted all day because we are recording this later than I wanted to, because unlike you, I do not suffer from hangovers, which is nice. Before Columbine and Sandy Hook, there was Kip Kinkle. The moody, dark, gun-obsessed, trench coat-wearing poster child for school shootings. The image of Kip has remained frozen in time, the dangerous child people point to as the reason some kids needs to be locked up for life. Today, we discuss his childhood, his family, and the beginning of his killing spree. And in part two, we will talk about the rest of his killing spree and all the aftermath that happened after those few murderous days. And part two will come out much sooner than a normal episode would at this point because we pretty much have it written. We just need the time to record it. So, Kevin, go ahead and start us off. In January of 1972, Bill Kinkle married Faith Zaransky. 
and four years later, they welcomed their baby girl, Kristen. Six years later, they had a baby boy who they named Kiplin Philip Kinkle. Both Bill and Faith were Spanish teachers and took their children camping, hiking, and skiing almost every weekend. They decided to take a sabbatical year in Spain from 1986 to 87, when Kip was only about six years old, while his older sister was in fifth grade. She was placed in a class that was taught in English, whereas Kip was placed in a class that was only taught in Spanish. His sister said that this was a difficult time for Kip, obviously. After coming home to the U.S., Kip begins having academic issues and is forced to repeat first grade due to immaturity and slow emotional and physical development. Right there with you, buddy. Were you held back? I think in kindergarten. <laughs> really? Yeah. You think? I, it was kindergarten. I did it twice. <laughs> <laughs> I had to do it twice. You did it so well the first time. You just they, they asked you to come back and do it again. I set a great example by throwing desks at kids and being very violent. Really? I was bad. Yeah. Oh, see, I was a I, 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 I worry about our daughter because I was like a perfect angel and you were not. So we'll see. She is a toss up. We can flip a coin. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> so in second grade, Kip began to have issues with spelling and language, but not a lot of anything else. He did not qualify for special education services, but had a high level of frustration and anxiety. By 1991, Bill Kinkle quit his regular teaching job and spent more time tutoring and helping Kip. Bill also taught night classes at Lane Community College in Eugene. By this time, Kip finally qualified for special education services and really began showing improvement, receiving all A's and B's on his report card that year. He was an interesting student excelling in math and science while simultaneously needing special services in other academic areas. In a recent interview with the Huffington Post called Kip Kinkle is Ready to Speak by Jessica Schulberg. And that is the article I'm going to cite probably the most in this in this podcast. Kip said that he began hearing voices in his head for the first time when he was around 12 years old. So he recalled getting off the school bus and walking up his driveway and hearing a male voice say, quote, you need to kill everyone, everyone in the world. Isn't that crazy? <laughs> yes. If that is the voice you hear when you're like, what, like 12 years old, you just hear that voice. Ugh. And yeah, like, it that... sounds like we're going to continue hearing about a lot of the voices that he didn't actually talk about until somewhat recently. So a lot of this stuff happened like during the pandemic, like, the, the reporter from the Huffington Post that wrote the article that I highly, highly recommend people read. He talks extensively about the voices in his head. And, and I've sprinkled that throughout this because so much of Kip Kinkle is speculation, like in textbooks and in magazine articles and newspaper articles and stuff. But it's I'm, I try to use as many direct quotes and recent research from the Huffington Post article throughout it to kind of give a little bit more of like a nuanced view of Kip Kinkle from the inside out, basically. So after hearing this voice, Kip turned around. He looked for someone behind him, but no one was there. He ran inside of his house, but the voice followed him in, accompanied by a second voice. Frightened, he retrieved his rifle that he had been given for his 12th birthday and held it tight, hoping it would protect him from the invisible intruders. He, Because he thought they were literal, like people following him, you know, because like 
you know, I mean, obviously we're going to find that he's, you know, a paranoid schizophrenic, you know, but when, when you have such an early onset of it, when you're, you know, 12 years old, you quite literally think it's somebody following you, you know, because you don't have anything else to compare it to. Voices like clear as day. Like, yeah. Telling you to kill the entire world. That's insane. Yeah. Like, where does that come from? Yeah. So he, exactly. So and and that's something we're going to try to explore some you know in this podcast a little bit but so that night he laid in bed waiting for the voices to go away and apparently they just kept talking the two voices soon became three all of them were male they had a hierarchy and kip c- could tell them apart from each other they sometimes argued with each other and they often worked together to denigrate and manipulate kip isn't that insane like this is again from the recent interview he gave to the huffington post they spoke about him as if he couldn't hear them so they're like talking shit about him in front of him like in his head that's that's gotta fuck with you so hard yeah everything they said was ugly negative and violent the voices terrified kip Uh, They warned him that everyone would think that he was a freak if he tried to tell anyone about them. So, like, they would literally be like, oh, go ahead and try to say something to someone. They'll think that you're crazy, you know? So, it's like, it it just added to his, like, frustration, anxiety, and, you know, kind of craziness. It's like some, like, Ultra weird. Yeah. Well, and we'll get into that, too. So, Kip tried to make sense of what he was experiencing, but he couldn't. And he didn't grow up particularly religious. The The Kinkle family wasn't religious, but he wondered if they came from God or even the devil. So eventually he settled on an explanation. And this is straight from what he, this is. A, eventually he settled on an explanation. And this is exactly what he said. He said, I believed that the Disney Corporation was working in conjunction with the U.S. government and they had planted a chip in my head so that the voices were coming from this chip. Isn't that crazy? Like that's Well, like... the first part's correct. <laughs> so over time he became fixated on the idea that the Chinese were going to invade the West Coast, and I became obsessed with obtaining weapons, not just guns, but knives and explosives. So I think prior to this Huffington Post interview just from like this year and last I don't think that there was like a huge explanation other than like, oh, he was just a dark kid who obsessed with guns. Like he truly is explaining like what was going on in his head and why he felt the need to like stockpile, you know? Yeah, it's wild for a kid that young to stockpile weapons. Yeah. So in 1996-ish, Kip also got caught shoplifting CDs from Target. And of those CDs, I believe one of them was like a Marilyn Manson CD, which is how he kind of got the moniker of being like the dark, moody, you know, Marilyn Manson gothic trench coat wearing kid. I mean, he he does wear a trench coat, as we'll see later on. But um, that's one of the reasons that Marilyn Manson got kind of attached to him is that he was caught shoplifting a CD of his from Target. Later that year, he also bought a sawed-off shotgun from a friend, and he kept it hidden in his room. That's not a casual weapon. <laughs> a sawed-off shotgun. Yeah. No, that's... Uh... And on top of that, his parents didn't know about it. We are going to have to go through Abigail's room every single day. You do know that, right? Let's just ask her if she can hear voices that aren't ours. You know? But, you know, even if Kip's parents had asked him that, he probably would have said no, because he didn't want people to think he was a freak. 
So he kept a lot of this internalized and literally was stockpiling weapons for like, a, from what it seems like, what he thinks is like some kind of almost impending battle. It's crazy, right? Yes. So also during this darkening time of 1995 to 96, his older sister, Kristen, transferred from the University of Oregon in Eugene to Hawaii Pacific, where she received a full scholarship in cheerleading. After Kristen left home, Kip and some friends used the Internet, which was pretty new at that point, at school to mail order some how to build bomb books which definitely one of them was the Anarchist Cookbook. And if you guys didn't know, the guy who wrote the Anarchist Cookbook wants to have nothing to do with it. And he really, really, really wishes it was out of print, but it is still one of the most heavily sought after books even today. Like it's one of Amazon's like bestsellers. It's crazy. He has no control over because of the way it was published and stuff. He pretty much has no control of it being in print. You know, when I was in high school, there was this guy in my biology class who looked like Otto from The Simpsons. He was like, <laughs> yeah. he looked like he should have been like the like janitor or something. He had like a mustache and stuff. He's like this Hesher guy. And he played me deicide for the first time. And he also like Xerox copied the whole anarchist cookbook in this at, at this in the school office for me to give to me in <laughs> biology class. Wow. Did you take it? I'm assuming. Yeah. Yeah. Of did, course. Did you do anything with it? Did you build bombs? We made some bombs, yeah. Did you make some napalm? Yeah. Is that in there? Uh, Yeah, I think so. Yeah. Yeah, we did all that kind of stuff. I mean, but it wasn't like serious, right? We had no intention of like using it on people, you know? We just want to see shit blow up. Of course. We were like teenagers. Yeah, and it's also almost the 4th of July here. I'm tired of hearing shit blow up. Now I'm getting old, I'm like, get off my lawn, you know? <laughs> Anyways, oh, so when the kids were caught, Faith, Kip's mom, started to worry more about the friends Kip was hanging out with and whether they were bad influences on one another. Then on January 4th, 1997, Kip went to a snowboarding clinic with a friend in Bend, Oregon. The two boys were arrested for throwing rocks off a highway overpass. Not Which cool, guys. Which is ridiculously dangerous. Like, people die from that. Yeah. Yeah. It's like a bullet going through a windshield, basically. Yeah. One of the rocks struck a car below. The arresting officer said that she caught Kip's friend at the overpass and found Kip back at the motel where they were staying. She said Kip started crying and immediately asked the officer if anyone was hurt. Kip claimed his friend had actually thrown the rock that hit the car. Kip and his friend were charged for the offense and referred to the Department of Youth Services in Eugene, Oregon. At 11.40 p.m., the Ben police called the Kinkles, who asked that Kip be held there until they can come get him. They drove two hours that same night to pick Kip up in Bend. Two weeks after this incident, Kip begins counseling with psychologist Dr. Jeffrey Hicks. Kip's mother, Faith, was concerned about Kip. Between the obvious flare-up of issues with shoplifting and the rock-throwing, as well as his, quote, extreme interest in guns, knives, and explosives, Faith wanted Dr. Hicks to help Kip come up with coping skills to curtail his anger. Additionally, Faith was also deeply concerned with Kip's strained relationship with his father. Hicks wrote that, quote, Kip became tearful when discussing his relationship with his father. He reported that Kip thought his mother viewed him as a good kid with some bad habits, while his father saw him as a bad kid with bad habits. He felt his father expected the worst from him. 
In this meeting, Hicks found no evidence of a thought disorder or, or psychosis. He diagnosed Kip with major depressive disorder and concluded that, quote, Kip had difficulty with learning in school, had difficulty managing anger, some angry acting out, and depression. I know that didn't make sense, but that was a quote. <laughs> <laughs> a week after, Kip attended his second counseling session. His parents noticed a slight improvement. On February 26, 1997, Kip was assessed by the Department of Youth Services as a follow-up to the rock-throwing incident in Bend. Kip was taken to Skipworth Juvenile Facility to meet with the psychologist, Dr. John Crumbly. Dr. Crumbly did an intake interview with Kip and his parents. According to Crumbly, the Kinkles were impressive parents. They wanted their son to take responsibility for what he did and wanted to make things right with the victim. He said that Kip was not typical of the delinquent kids he usually sees and that he was appropriately remorseful and quite straightforward about his part in the crime. Dr. Crumbly felt that the crime was more of a boyish crime and also felt that they did not have a real case against Kip as he actually wasn't the one who had thrown the rock. It was decided that Kip would complete 32 hours of community service, write a letter of apology and pay for damages to the car. Dr. Crumley saw nothing at all out of the ordinary with Kip or his family. After this, and I, I don't, you know, if it, if this, it seems like that this is somewhat of an isolated incident. At least that's what Dr. Crumbly would know. I, I don't necessarily disagree with him. Do you? No, I mean, being, I, I don't like the excuse being like it's a boyish crime because it's like what the what the hell is that? I could tell you. Well, we, I, we I, need a. <laughs> whole other episode for that but i'm just saying that like what girls can't do that but i mean i guess they don't right they're too busy like talking about boys shut and, up like, buying shoes shut up but i i just i don't like that it's so genderized boyish crimes versus girlish like i guess what would a girlish crime be like shoplifting or something yeah or like i, I can't even think of like hooking <laughs> i don't know <laughs> That's girl crimes and like boy crimes are like frog baseball and throwing rocks at cars. Yeah. But I I guess I'm just what I'm saying is that I don't like the excuse of boys will be boys when boys do destructive terrible things because it feels like you're giving them a pass. Yeah. That's that's the part I don't like. So after this, Kip had a few more counseling sessions with Dr. Hicks. He was still suffering from depression, but overall, Kip seemed to be doing better. However, Dr. Hicks did notice his ongoing interest in explosives. Towards the end of April 1997, Kip was suspended from school twice, one for kicking another student in the head after the student shoved him. Kip was angry that the other kid did not get punished, which I kind of agreed too. I mean, the kid started it. Maybe he was more severe, but yeah, the first kid didn't, the, he didn't get punished at all. Yeah, that's a little unfair. That would, that, would, that would anger me. Soon after, Kip got a three-day suspension for throwing a pencil at another boy, which again, throwing a pencil, a three-day suspension seems kind of excessive. Yeah. Yeah. Unless, like, he was, like, trying to stab him in the eye with it or something. But, again, it, does, it doesn't seem like that. So, after the three-day suspension, Kip had his fifth counseling session with Dr. Hicks. Faith and Kip discussed the school suspensions with Dr. Hicks. They both felt that the school handled the incidents unfairly. I agree. And that the school was not acknowledging how much progress Kip had made. I don't know if I agree with that part, but I, I think that was a little severe. 
On June 2nd, 1997, Dr. Hicks discussed the use of antidepressants and recommended that Kip try a course of treatment with Prozac. He wrote, Kip reports eating is like a chore. He complains that food doesn't taste good. He often feels bored and irritable. He feels tired upon wakening most mornings. He reports there is nothing to which he is looking forward to. He denies suicidal ideation, intent, or plan of action. Hicks forwarded these notes to the Kinkle family physician with a recommendation that Kip be put on Prozac for depression. The physician concurred, and four days later, Kip began taking 20 milligrams of Prozac per day. A few weeks later, at his seventh counseling session, Dr. Hicks noted that the Prozac seemed to be working after only 12 days. Hicks wrote that Kip was, quote, sleeping better, no temper outbursts, taking the medication as prescribed without side effects. He also noted that Kip appeared less depressed. So, again, I'm going to take a lot from the Huffington Post article that I'm going to be referencing throughout. And one of the reasons I like it so much is that we actually get a firsthand account from Kip Kinkle, which is fairly rare, especially with school shootings, because if you think about it, with school shootings, they either turn the gun on themselves like Elliot Rogers or they're killed by police like the the Columbine shooters. Were the Columbine shooters killed by police or did they kill themselves? I feel like they probably killed themselves. Yeah, I think they did. Um, but anyways, most, I would say the majority of school shooters do not end up being interviewed after their school shootings. Like Sandy Hook, that guy died, right? Yeah, I think so. Yeah. I'm just saying that like most, it, it, like that we did one school shooter, the Cho Sung Hui guy, the Virginia Tech shooting. Yeah. He died. So like we just, so what I'm saying is that it's just a rare opportunity to get a firsthand account of a mass shooter because mass shooters do tend to die by police force or commit suicide. Yeah, so they, they when and, they and when Kip, they start when they go into something like that. Yeah, they they're don't... they're going into that mode knowing that they're going to end their lives. And yeah. and Kip went into this as you guys will see. Kip went into this thinking that he was not going to walk away from it. He was planning on killing himself. So that's one of the reasons I'm going to be using the Huffington Post article as a direct source because he is quoted a lot in it. I remember freaking out, Kip said. I had this plan, and this is a mess, but I had this plan to get into the military because if I got into the military, then I could get into the CIA. And if I got into the CIA, then I could get to the right connects to find whoever in the government put this chip in my brain. So I know you were talking about MK Ultra and He's stuff like that, into right? Like Jason Bourne exactly. or something. Exactly. So he has like this very intentional plan that almost seems logical but it's based in craziness though it's based in delusions you know so it's it's a a great fit for the cia actually and here's another quote from him and being diagnosed as depressed this was something the voices pushed meant that i would not be allowed in the military and i would not be allowed to own guns Unable to explain this predicament because, again, he didn't want to sound crazy. He didn't want to cause more alarm bells to go off. So unable to explain this to his parents and or his psychologists, Kip took Prozac for three months until this prescription ran out. By then, he had been staying out of trouble and was no longer in therapy. He figured that the antidepressant was like an antibiotic that only needed to be taken for a limited period of time and that after that he would be cured so he didn't understand how in antidepressants work which again like it's still in its infancy 
even today. So in the late 90s, you know, mid to late 90s, this shit's still an experiment. Yeah. I'm, I don't know about doping up a bunch of kids. Well, I don't think that's the I mean, best way to it, go. With a developing mind, it, it can be very, very hard. And I know... Some of these drugs that like they my put sister growing up, I don't, are... I don't think my sister would mind me saying this. She doesn't listen to podcasts, anyways. But growing up, she was seen a psychologist for I think depression and anxiety, and it was a constant fine tuning process. Like it was always like, let's try Effexor, let's try this dosage. Oh, that made you feel crazy. Let's crank it down a notch. Oh, that did nothing. Let's crank it up a notch. Yeah. Okay, let's try Prozac. Oh, okay, you didn't like the way you you couldn't sleep. Okay, well let's couple it with a sleeping pill. Oh, that makes you feel like a zombie. Okay, let's try this third medication. Let's try it. You know, and so so much of you know psychiatry and dosing for mental illness, especially in young developing people, is it's a constant fine tuning process. It's really only after your mind is fully formed, usually by the age of like 24 or something, that you can kind of be more consistent with your dosage and be more consistent with your medication. But even still, you know, life circumstances, life changes can make you have to change your dosage or, you know, see a psychiatrist or do all kinds of things. Like there's no, that's the thing with psychiatry. That's the thing with mental health is that there's no one stop shop solution for it. It's a constant fine tuning process. And so for Kip, it's a very, very dangerous thing for him to have the understanding that, oh, I took these pills for three months. I'm cured because if he believes that and these voices are still happening, then he's just like, well, this is just my life. Yeah, it's weird that he never mentioned that to the psychologist and the impending he was scared. Chinese invasion. Yeah. I mean, and that's why it's so interesting to find out about it so far after, because he he said that one of the reasons he didn't want to talk about it like right after is he didn't want to hurt any of the victims' families by coming out and talking about it. He didn't want it to be about him. He was like, I've to this day, he feels remorse and guilt for taking away the people that he did right and so that's one of the reasons he's just never really talked about it and so it's it's interesting because he's so heavily researched but you know scholars academics psychiatrists psychologists they come in and they try to fill in all the gaps of understanding and so they're like oh well kip must have been thinking this and kip must have been going through that and kip you know but it's interesting because i don't think that all the textbooks and articles and all that stuff written on kip kinkle throughout the early 2000s up until now I don't think that they were aware of all of the stuff that truly was going on inside of him because he wasn't giving these kinds of interviews. Yeah, for sure. Okay, so we left off with the antidepressant being like antibiotic. However, during this time that he was taking Prozac, this is so crazy. What's the best thing to buy a mentally ill kid on Prozac for a present? High-grade explosives? Uh, a gun. So Bill, who is like an educated teacher. And I mean, again, like I know different genders, different time period, but although this wasn't that long ago, Bill helped Kip buy a nine millimeter Glock 19. We're not talking like BB gun. We're talking like serious. Some firepower. Yeah. So the understanding between them was that Kip would do the research on which model gun he wanted and would pay for it with his own money. So Bill, his dad, was thinking that this was like a bonding experience for them, right? And it was like a prize for good behavior, but that it was still, you know, coming out of his own allowance and stuff like that. And he, there was also the understanding that Kip would not use the gun without his father present. 
and that the gun would not become Kip's until he turned 21. So there were parameters on the ownership of the gun. But again, like it seems like a weird reward. But again, this is being from Southern California. You know, I lived in Oregon for a long time and guns are way more part of the culture there, yeah. like hunting well, and all that a lot stuff. Of hunting. But yeah. but a nine millimeter Glock is not a hunting it's not a hunting rifle. No, but if you're hunting humans. Yeah, but like, the, so the Columbine kids, they had a bunch of rifles and stuff, and they were hunters, and it was Colorado, so it kind of made sense. But buying a kid a handgun, like, that's weird. So Bill would have had to buy it, right? Yeah, Bill bought it okay. for Kip yeah. using Kip's money, and it was a reward, basically, for good behavior and a bonding experience. Because he was like, yay, my son's interested in something. I'm going to foster this habit or, you know, this hobby of his. So that same summer, Kip secretly also bought a 22 pistol from a friend and he kept it he kept it hidden from his parents. So at this point, he owns a nine millimeter Glock in his dad's possession and he has hoarded away a sawn off shotgun and a 22 caliber pistol. And he's got some sort of rifle that he was clutching the first time he heard the voices, right? Oh, I think so. And then on top of that, he's got the anarchist cookbook hiding somewhere in his room. And he's got potentially like bomb making things as well. He's like fucking 12 years old at this point. And this is the arsenal he's building. It's baby Rambo. So Kip began his freshman year at Thurston High School in 1997. According to friends and parents, he did much better in school and things were starting to look up. Bill Kinkle had his friend Don Stone, the Thurston High School football coach, call Kip at home and invite him to come out for the freshman football team. Things must have been looking up because on September 30th, 1997, Bill bought Kip a Ruger 22 semi-autic. So this is like his fucking fifth gun at this point or something? It's so crazy. So he bought, yeah, he buys him this 22 semi-autic rifle under the condition that he would only use it under adult supervision. Again, the got uh, the gun was bought with Kip's money, and if he's doing all this research and stuff, why I don't know why he'd go for a twenty-two cheap ammunition. That's true. And light. Very light. And easy to point and shoot. Not very much kickback. All these things are <laughs> I correct. Mean, so that's, yes, that's probably the research that he did. In a speech class, Kip gives a talk on quote how to make a bomb. <laughs> And apparently this didn't really stand out very much because... Uh, well, oh, okay. <laughs> so he shows the uh, details, uh, detailed drawings of explosives attached to a clock and goes through how to make a bomb. According to kids in the class, a girl in the class gave a speech on how to join the Church of Satan. So Kip's topic did not seem extraordinary. <laughs> yeah. Wow. <laughs> cool school. Anything goes. Yeah. In October and December of 1997, two school are, shootings. I will say those are two very separate things, though. Joining the Satanic Church is not the same thing as blowing up something. Very different. I, If I was a teacher and that happened in my class, I would totally let the girl do that. Like, whatever. Like, freedom of religion. That's, like, in our Constitution, right? But, like, not freedom to blow up shit. I mean, I guess right to bear arms, but... This is more than that. I definitely would have called him out on that. It's a little sus. I would at least refer him to a counselor. On December 14th, 1997, while at the San Diego airport, waiting for a flight home with a friend, Bill 
Kip's dad, struck up a conversation with Dan Close, an Oregon University professor who specialized in juvenile violence. They talked for about two hours. And the conversation started with Kristen, which is Kip's sister. Bill said that she was going to be graduating from college in August and that he was looking forward to going to Hawaii with the family to be there for her. According to Dan Close, Bill then saw a forensic book in Close's bag and started talking about his troubled son. Bill told Close that in the last couple of years, Kip had started hanging out with a tougher group of kids, playing with explosives, and that he was becoming difficult to manage, more secretive, and having problems at school. On March 24, 1998, the Jonesboro school shootings occurred, which is a bonkers case. Oh my gosh. I, I just like thought I was going to quickly Google it just to see like why it was even mentioned, you know, as like a significant thing in Kip's um, story. And it's crazy. Are you I ready for this shit? I have not heard about that one either. Are you, are you ready for this shit? I'm this sitting is crazy. Down. Come okay. In. So two middle schoolers. I don't know how this isn't a bigger story. It's fucking crazy. Two middle schoolers, Mitchell Johnson, 13, and Andrew Golden, 11. Uh, fucking 11. Wow. Fatally shot four students and a teacher with multiple weapons, and both were arrested when they attempted to flee the scene. Ten others were wounded. So killed four, wounded ten. 11 years old. That's 13 years old. Okay, that's not even the craziest part, okay? Are you fucking ready? <laughs> mm, I guess not. In, no in August of 1998, both boys were sentenced to confinement until they reached the age of 21, which was the maximum sentence allowed under Arkansas law. They served until they turned 18. They would have only served until they turned 18 had federal authorities not added the additional confinement for weapons charges. The case led to public outcry for tougher sentencing laws pertaining to juvenile offenders. Johnson was released in 2005. That is fucking seven years after the killings. And Golden was released in 2007. Can you fucking believe? I Sorry, I've, I know I'm cussing a lot right now. I could not believe that. I've never heard of that. They were either. released when they were 21 years old. That's crazy. They killed four people and injured 10. They murdered in cold blood. I mean, they were very, very young. I get that. And I, I, but like, I don't know when it comes to like more than one person and it was very intentional. It was first degree murder. Yeah, that's crazy. Dude, they're out and they're like about like, and they own guns. I was reading, I started going down this rabbit hole with them. They own guns currently. Like the, these two kids that are now like, they're like younger than me. They like are out and about and own guns. That's reassuring. Arkansas, don't go there. <laughs> Not on the list. But you'll see that Kip's story, even though, you know, it happened the same year, very different outcome because Oregon, Arkansas, very, very different places. And laws changed after that school shooting, the Jonesboro one. But it's just so insane to me that they got out when they were 21. I mean, Ed Kemper got out when he was, what, like 18 or 21 or something like that. And he didn't go on to do any other bad things, right? <laughs> no. I mean, he killed his he killed his grandparents. 
He stayed at the mental institution, I think, until he was 18 or 21, whatever magical age it was until, you know, that they could release him. And then, yeah, he went on a humongous killing serial killer spree. So it's just like, I don't know if we should let juvenile defenders. I mean, there, I'm, there's no happy answer or solution to this, but I, I, I was floored by the Jonesboro case. Like, that's crazy. So according to a friend of Kip's, they were watching the Jonesboro shooting on TV together. And both of them said, hey, that's pretty cool. That's that's all. That's <laughs> that's why the Jonesboro came into it. But I just did like a tiny bit of research on it. And it's it's a bonkers case. In May of 1998, Kip spent the night at a friend's house. They organized a bunch of friends to beat the school TP record. They spent weeks hoarding toilet paper in Tony's garage. That night, they snuck out of the house and met 10 others at midnight and did a grand toilet papering job of another house using over 400 rolls of toilet paper. They beat the school record but got caught. The next day, Kip, along with the others, had to go clean off the house. Apparently, he was one of the few kids whose parents grounded him for the incident. Later that month, a friend of Kip's stole a 32 caliber pistol from Scott Keeney, the father of one of their friends. He arranged over the phone to sell it to Kip the next day at school. It is unclear whether Kip knew the gun had been stolen from Scott Keeney or not. On May 20th, 1998, at approximately 8 a.m., Kip went to school with $110 in cash and he bought the stolen 32 caliber Beretta semi-automatic pistol. So this makes it what, gun number six or seven that he's got? Yep. Loaded with a nine-round clip. Kip put it in a paper sack in his locker. Scott Keeney called the school to report that the gun was missing and that he thought a friend of his son might have stolen it from him. He gave the school a list of about a dozen kids he thought might be involved and Kip's name was not on the list. Detective Al Worthen happened to be at the school and eventually, after talking to a few kids, went to go talk to Kip. And at about 9.15 a.m., Kip was pulled out of his study hall class. Detective Wortham told him that he was there to investigate the disappearance of a parent's handgun. Kip admitted to having a gun in his locker. Both Kip and Corey were immediately arrested. They were promptly escorted off the school premises in police handcuffs and were suspended pe pending expulsion. Later that same day, Kip was brought to the police station. He was fingerprinted, photographed, and charged with possession of a firearm in a public building and the felony charge of receiving a stolen weapon. Detective Al Worthen interviewed him. According to the detective, Kip was very upset and worried about what his parents were going to think. He was scared about what was going to happen to him. Soon after, Bill picked up Kip from the police station and brought him home. It's very, very important to note that most people with schizophrenia do not commit acts of violence. I just want to say that. In fact, people with severe mental illnesses are more likely to be the victims of violence than the perpetrators. But Kip's voices demanded he commit terrible violence at an incredibly vulnerable time in his young life. Now, here are the voices that he heard, and this is again from the Huffington Post article. Look what you've done, you stupid piece of shit. You're worthless, one voice said. You have to kill him. Shoot him, another said, echoed by the third. Kip wanted to kill himself, but the voices told him he couldn't yet. 
quote, I know it's really hard for people to accept and understand, but there was something very clear inside me, like suicide wasn't an option for me until I had done this thing that they were telling me to do. And they had promised me that once I did this thing, I could kill myself. It's dark. The voices kept getting louder and louder. When they got home, Kip went to his room crying. He took two guns from his room and hid them in the attic in case his dad went looking for him. Quote, get your gun. Shoot him. Shoot him. Another voice. That afternoon, he picked up the rifle, walked down the stairs, and saw his dad sitting at the bar. Mm. Kill him. Shoot him. You have no choice. And I'm assuming it's like a breakfast bar, not like a bar bar. The voices had never told him he didn't have a choice before. Kip shot his dad in the back of the head, dragged the body into the bathroom, and covered it with a sheet. Look at what you've done now, you stupid shit. As Kip waited for his mom to come home, he fielded several phone calls asking how he was doing and where his dad was. He lied each time. When Faith got home that evening, Kip met her in the garage. Killer, look at what you've done. You have no other choice. He told his mom he loved her, shot her twice in the back of the head, three times in the face, and once in the heart. Mm. He covered her body with a sheet, too. That's fucking crazy. Yeah. He stayed up all night, arguing with the voices. Get guns and bullets. You have no other choice. Kill everybody. Go to school and kill everybody. Look at what you've already done. Kip spent the night with his parents' dead bodies covered in sheets in the bathroom and garage. At one point during the night, Kip held a gun to his head, but he couldn't bring himself to pull the trigger. Kip got up on the morning of May 21st, 1998, and left his house around 7.30 a.m. He dressed in a long trench coat. He filled his backpack with ammunition and carried three guns, a 22 caliber semi-automatic Ruger rifle, his father's 9mm Glock pistol, and a 22 caliber Ruger semi-automatic pistol. He taped a hunting knife to his leg, and he also taped two spare bullets to his chest to make sure to save enough ammunition to kill himself. He drove his mother's Ford Explorer to school. He parked one block from the high school and walked down a dirt path, taking a shortcut past the tennis courts and into the back parking lot. And that's where we're going to leave off for part one. I know. Wow. That's one of the reasons That's... I really had to have this be a two-parter. Is just there was just so much it's... documented yeah. stuff. It's sad. It's super sad because if he had just felt comfortable, I don't know what the word is, but if he had just felt vulnerable or comfortable enough to be like fully honest, then maybe, maybe he could have been treated accurately barely done more counseling made the voices go away not feel like he had to resort to violence you know it just it's so sad yeah he, he it just it feels like he didn't have a chance and i know i feel like we say that a lot on the show and and the thing is is he did he had supportive parents who took him to counseling you know i just wish they wouldn't have bought him so many goddamn guns yeah that's but they they didn't know I'm, and I'm not putting on Bill. Obviously, Bill is a victim. But oh, I can't imagine. So that's going to be it for this week. But we're going to have part two out in less time than a normal episode would be. Because we already have it partially written. We just need the time to record it. Before next month. <laughs> well, yeah, that too. 
So anyways, we want to thank you for listening. And you can find us on all of the platforms. We're not going to list them all, but, you know, including YouTube and stuff. So you can find us there. And, you know, don't forget to rate, review, subscribe, and tell your friends about our podcast. Each review, rating, and referral gets us to a larger audience. So, yeah, don't be afraid to shout us out to people you know or don't know on the street. Just be like, yo, True Crime Dumpster. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, just start yelling True Crime Dumpster at people and see what happens. But anyways, we just want to thank you for listening and want to thank Mason for this recommendation. We'll be finishing up this episode in the next couple days and we'll have it out soon. So tune in next time while we continue talking out the trash. Something like that. Yeah, that sounds good. Okay. Bye. Take care.